Welcome back to Owned and Operated, where we dive deep into the businesses we own, the businesses we are acquiring, and we also bring on guests to talk about their operating struggles. If you like what you hear today, follow John and Brandon on Twitter. That's John at Wilson Companies and Brandon at Brandon Niro. Also, check out our weekly newsletter where we teach you how to be an effective operator. You can sign up by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting ownedandoperated.com. That's ownedandoperated.com. Check it out. Chris Edwards is a small business owner born in and residing in Colorado. After college, he jumped into a finance position, but eventually decided to switch out of corporate America and into the SMB world. So in February of 2021, he closed on a flooring store called Affordable Flooring Warehouse. They have both a storefront location and a warehouse operation to offer customers installation services. You'll get to hear about how this has created a competitive advantage and differentiated their business. You'll also get to hear about why it seems more consulting guys are purchasing small companies nowadays, as well as the trajectory and direction he envisions his company going in. Enjoy the show. It's no secret that Brandon and I have cleaned up a lot of poop in our career. Unfortunately, we don't clean up crappy bookkeeping. That's where today's sponsor comes in. Apple Tree Business Services handles bookkeeping, payroll, and taxes for small businesses. Apple Tree Business Services is the go-to choice for growing service companies so they can manage cash flow, know their numbers, and save on taxes. Their U.S.-based team has taken care of small business bookkeeping and taxes since 2005. Find them online at appletreebusiness.com or email patrick at appletreebusiness.com. Today, I have Chris Edwards with us. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, John. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, this will be a lot of fun. Chris, how about you start us off with a little bit of a bio on who you are and what you're up to? Yeah, sure thing. So I currently run a business called Affordable Flooring Warehouse. Just personally, I'm from Colorado, grew up in the front range of Colorado, started my career in corporate finance and FP&A at a telecom company that did a lot of mergers and acquisitions. So that's how I got exposed to the M&A world. We did about 30 deals when I was at that company. So I got a lot of exposure to value creation through acquisitions, which is kind of probably what prompted me to go down this career path, or at least seeded this career path in my mind. I then, before I bought this business, I was in consulting for about three years doing a salesforce.com implementation projects. And you know, during the pandemic, I took a hard look at my life decided I didn't want to stay in corporate America for too much longer. Stumbled upon the SMB ETA acquisition, you know, entrepreneurship through acquisition world, and made a lot of sense for a lot of the reasons that your guests have articulated, I'm sure. So I quit my job in October of 2020, and I ultimately closed on Affordable Flooring Warehouse in February of 2021 and have been operating it as sort of the de facto general manager ever since. And yeah, so I've been drinking from the fire hose the last little over a year now and am focused heads down on making this the the best flooring store we can. Yeah. There's a lot to dive into there. I don't think I knew that you had the consulting and the background in sort of M&A, obviously for a little bit of a 
larger corporation, but that's pretty interesting. Yeah. The 30 deals, like walk us through that. Rough size of the deals, like what were they looking for? How did they think about value creation? Yeah. So I worked at a company called Zayo Group. It was public. It's now private. So what Zayo was, was a roll-up of telecom assets. It started in about 2007. And at that time, telecom assets were trading at pretty depressed multiples. A lot of listeners may recall that in about 2002, there was a telecom bubble and crash. And basically, ever since that time, telecom assets were really depressed valuation-wise. And so an entrepreneur in Boulder, Colorado, kind of he had been an executive and had kind of ridden through that bubble and crash the probably 10, 20 years before that. And he saw an opportunity to roll these assets up at scale. He had some heavy hitting private equity guys funding him. And they rolled up about, like I said, they did about 30 deals from about 2007 to when I left, which was about 2017. So we were involved in a lot of deals. I wasn't a part of all of them. I was a junior employee at that point. I was just out of college. I was like a you know financial analyst, FP&A analyst, kind of climbed the ranks a little bit. And you know the biggest deal that we did was a $2 billion deal to take private a company called AboveNet. So that sort of really catapulted Zayo from sort of like this hodgepodge group of guys that were doing these deals that people were thought were a little bit speculative. And they basically turned $300 million of equity into about $4 billion of equity over the course of 10 years. At its peak, Zayo was valued at about $8 billion and then was taken private about two or three years ago. So, you know, obviously, very different world than what I'm playing in now, way bigger scale, huge private equity money funding them. A lot of it was financed by debt. So just seeing how much value could be created on a levered investment was really eye-opening to me. I mean, the compounded equity value of Zayo from its inception to when I left was about 45%. So you're talking about huge returns over a long course of time. So just having that sort of FP&A background, that financial modeling background, that background of really scrappy guys who are out there like making these deals happen, rolling it all together, integrating them was awesome. It was like probably the best place I could have ever landed out of college. It was a really incredible experience to jump into fresh out of college. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't know if we've had another guest on who has participated in like an at scale roll up, which I would define this as at scale. This is, you know, billions of dollars. I think you might be the first because I can't think of another one. There's a lot of people like in the process. Yeah. (laughs) That is really interesting. All right. So you left there and you began consulting for Salesforce. I worked for a consultancy that we did in Salesforce implementation projects. So we were a Salesforce partner. Gotcha. I worked at Slalom for a couple of years and most recently Deloitte Consulting. Mm. Yeah. Is there like a natural, it just seems there's a path. I know a bunch of people, there's a bunch of ex McKinsey, ex Deloitte, ex like all these like different consulting firms and they, all these guys end up in ETA. <laughs> like, is it, is it a thing inside there where people see it as a better path somehow? Like how do so many consulting guys end up buying small companies? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. There's definitely not like I wouldn't say there's like an entrepreneurial ETA ethos within Deloitte. Like I didn't learn any of this from Deloitte. I think probably what happens when you when you're in consulting is you get exposure to a lot of different businesses. You can kind of peek under the hood of different businesses. You can see the common areas of concern, areas of you know challenges that companies have. You kind of get a broad perspective of different businesses and how they work. So it probably gives consultants a little bit more of confidence that they can kind of jump into ETA and may not necessarily know everything about the business or the industry, but get up to speed pretty quickly. That's the one thing that consultants do do well, is they're able to get up to speed fairly quickly. Now, I would say that it's a very surface level understanding of the business a lot of times. I mean, consultants get a bad rap for a reason. A lot of the skills that I learned in consulting do not translate to the small business world at all. It's much scrappier. I'm not doing decks all day. You know, it is a very polar opposite experience in a lot of ways. But you do have that kind of confidence to walk into a different business, not necessarily be overwhelmed by a day one because you've been exposed to a lot of different things. You kind of get a feeling of knowing what you need to know and what you don't need to know, right? Like you're not. I think one of the skills that I learned was not succumbing to analysis paralysis. It's like, I don't need to know everything about flooring day one, right? I don't need to freak out that I don't know the technical specifications of carpet. I know that I need to understand some things at a high level. And you kind of, consulting gives you that sort of understanding of where you need to pick and choose your spots of understanding and where you can leave things alone and let them matriculate over time. Okay, I can follow that. And maybe like tack onto that, typically male young and ambitious. (laughs) So we'll add those on there too. (laughs) That's probably true. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of consultants get burned out in consulting because it's easy Mm -hmm. to get burned out on, you know, it sucks. I mean, like just doing decks all day and, you know, it's not the most sustainable lifestyle. So I think probably for a lot of the reasons that I was attracted to it, making a jump to a small business ownership career path, can make a lot of sense for these types of people like me. You can buy things, just the logical aspect of it. You can buy things at a low multiple. You can, you know, hopefully grow it and create value from there. You've seen what value creation hopefully looks like if you've been in a part of successful consulting engagements. But yeah, I mean, consulting long-term is not necessarily the most healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So you're a little bit over a year. Yep. In. Yep. What month do you feel like you got your legs under you? Probably, I would say month nine. I feel like, okay, I can do this. I'm not like losing sleep. You get enough reps under your belt. You start to feel pretty confident about yourself. You see the P&L play out. You see that the business is working. Hopefully the thesis is playing out like I hoped. We're beating projections. We're beating forecasts. So I would say probably month nine is when I was, I was like, I could take a deep breath and like take a step back and say, okay, this is going to work. You know, the nine months prior to that were, I mean, at times hellacious. You know, <laughs> it was extremely intense. I financed this thing with 90% debt. You know, it's, it's a lot of pressure. You really put yourself out on the line. I didn't have any equity investors with me. I did it all myself. And there was a lot of challenging moments and sleepless nights. But yeah, I'd say probably month nine was when I was able to kind of take a deep breath and relax a little bit. Yeah. What were a couple of hellacious moments? Man, there were moments where I thought, you know, my installation team was going to quit. I thought that I was going to be without, you know, like my install manager. There were some 
moments with the seller during the transition that I just thought that I couldn't even deal with this guy anymore. Like he's just driving me crazy and wasn't helpful. So, and probably more than anything, just like thinking about what I had really done, which was pretty extreme thing. I had a good thing going. I was making good money and consulting. I had a decent lifestyle, not that much pressure necessarily. I was working hard, but you know, I had a pretty cushy life. And then I decided to throw that away and go for something that my entire net worth was on the line if it didn't work out, right? Like if this business goes to zero and I have this massive SBA loan on my head and I can't figure out how to pay it, like that's a lot of pressure, you know? So it was probably more just like not having a hundred percent certainty that this thesis that I built this whole acquisition around was going to work out. And until I actually saw the results, there were just moments that I thought that I had potentially ruined my life, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, you just kind of keep grinding, you keep going through it, you keep learning, you keep talking to customers, you keep making sales, you keep your employees happy, and eventually it works out. So far, it's been, I'd say, a pretty successful transition for me. Is the seller still there? How long did the transition last? The seller stayed for three months just to, you know, transition all of his institutional knowledge over, get me trained up. His son stayed for nine months through the end of the year. So I acquired in February last year. He stayed through the end of December. And there were some moments with him that were just extremely trying because he was just a hard person to manage. And all the family dynamics that come with that, it's crazy, you know, and actually his wife still works for us. So, you know, just coming into this family business, taking it over, all the, you know, bullshit that comes with being in a family business, you know, it's a crazy thing. And then also layering on top of that, it's a small town. You know, this guy has been an institution in Steamboat Springs for 14 years. And I'm like this new guy who doesn't know anything about flooring. Like, what is, who is this guy? So customers are skeptical, employees are skeptical. But yeah, so that was a lot of like interpersonal relationships you got to manage to make that work. Yeah. Family businesses are funny. Yeah. (laughs) I think just in general, I think it's a funny concept. It's like, hey, we're a family. So let's go make it like a lot more difficult. (laughs) Let's work together. Yeah. No, exactly. You know, the seller had health problems and he was like really struggling. So it's like, you know, you have that, you have the son who's like kind of taking care of his dad, who's, you know, anyways, there's just so many things you got to go through to navigate those choppy waters. I've always been like unbelievably skeptical of buying a business, like buying a family business in general, because like I'm from a family business yeah. and like, I get it. <laughs> like I know what's going on. Yeah. But the most recent one we did back in December, it was a really funny one. And I had a lot of concerns going into it, but it played out like amazing, totally awesome. So the owner, he was a young guy and his mom and his aunt. So like, you know, sisters both worked as admin and like accounts payable, accounts receivable, scheduling inside the business. They've been a total dream to work with, honestly. Like they've been amazing. I hope they retire from us. But before that, I have been like, oh man, I don't think this deal is going to work because you have two or three family members in there. I'm like, I don't know how this is going to work, man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it partially played out for you too, I guess. For sure. Yeah. 
the seller's daughter-in-law. She's like our head of sales. She's great. You know, like she's been awesome. I hope his son never listens to this, but his son was an absolute nightmare to, to work with. You know, like he was just, he thought he knew the business and he was running the show. But in reality, it basically, he was just on the payroll and his dad was just paying him and he wasn't doing anything, you know? And so, you know, you, you want to keep his wife because she's good, but he's not. And, you know, it's just like, you have to find a way to gracefully push him out while not like burning a bridge, hopefully, and, you know, keep his wife happy. So, you know, it's, yeah, like, as you know, family dynamics are extremely difficult sometimes. Yeah. It's like an understatement of the year. I think the only other understatement of the year would be, I think Heather Anderson the other day said small business owners don't like to pay taxes. And that would be the only like <laughs> larger understatement. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. All right. So the first nine months, could you give us a little bit of an idea of the scale of the company? That way we can work with something here. Yeah. So when I acquired it, it was doing about three and a half million. And last year we did a little over 4 million in revenue and kind of operating at like a 20% EBITDA margin kind of run rate. And team size? management? We have like three managers and full-time we have like eight employees and four installers that are kind of full-time with us, 1099s. Like quick counting, that was like 16 maybe? 17? So like 15. Yeah. 15 employees to kind of make this whole thing go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then can you explain the model to me? So we're a retail flooring store that provides installation services as well. So a big part of our business is, you know, installing to residential customers. So probably about 80, 90%, I'd say probably 80% of our revenue comes from just residential clients, customers coming in, they want to replace their carpet, they want to replace their LVT. We sell it to them at retail and we install it. We also are the largest stocking dealer in Northwest Colorado. So we have the most inventory and stock out of any of our competitors around here. So we have retail storefront. We have a warehouse operation in the back with a good amount of inventory that we stock. That allows us to you know, quickly turn jobs. If someone comes in, they want to replace their carpet after ski season. We can get them installed in a week, right? So that's one of our competitive advantages. It's also one of the challenges of the business. It's just inventory management. But yeah, so it's basically retail flooring products and then installation services. Can you walk me through the industry in general? I've always been, I have a guy like this, right? What's his name? I think Custom Flooring is their name. Great guy. The owner's awesome. I'd love to buy his business one day. <laughs> Bob, if you're listening, <laughs> I'm a good buyer. But I've always been confused by the competitive landscape because it would seem like Lowe's, Home Depot. I mean, there are some huge players yep. in this market. So like, how as a small company do you set yourself apart and keep stuff flowing? Yeah. So it's a great question. So there are a lot of big competitors and it is a increasingly hostile environment to small retailers like me. I would never own this business anywhere else in the country, really. We don't have a Home Depot here. We don't have a Lowe's here. We're like geographically isolated in Northwest Colorado. So we are kind of secluded from all that. But Lowe's and Home Depot, by and large, do not stock high quality products. What makes this whole industry go is 
there are tight relationships between manufacturers and small retailers like me. I actually just had Shaw in here with like five of their sales guys. We're actually about to go out to sushi after this call. And they're great. They provide me with a much higher echelon quality of products than Lowe's and Home Depot can provide. You can go to Lowe's and Home Depot and you can get 99 cent per square foot flooring for sure, but you get what you pay for. When you come to a specialty retailer, like affordable flooring warehouse, you're getting higher quality products. You're getting high quality installation services. We're a local business. You can come to our store. You know who we are. And we don't really play in that lower tier clientele market. We're in that sort of middle to upper echelon clientele. So we're selling like anywhere up from like $5 to $15 a square foot flooring, right? We do have some like lower end products just that we stock for those lower end clients. But it's a weird kind of legacy model that I would say that you have these manufacturers that are actually pretty loyal to smaller retailers, give them better products, give them better pricing and sort of Home Depot and Lowe's, they take sort of the contractor really like lower end, like, you know, turn and burn flippers. Like they're going to get that business all day. But for us, someone who wants to have quality stuff in their home, you come to a shop like ours. Are the subs like sort of shared? Like when you guys get slow, subs are subs, right? So they're just going around to whoever can provide them work. We actually do a pretty good job. So like our subs only work for us. They do not do work for any other stores around town. We're loyal to them. They're loyal to us. That's one of the tricky parts of the business is you you have to kind of manage you know, like right now we have a huge backlog of jobs, right? And we're going to give that all to the same guy basically. And in return in like December or January, when there might be a little bit of a lull, he's not going to go next door to our competitor and do jobs for them. So it's a tricky thing. Like what we've really found is over time, and this is something I've learned from the seller is that you have to maintain that sort of loyalty to them they can't go like, hey, I don't have a job for you today. They can't just go across the street and go to you know, the other carpet shop and do a job. Like That's not going to work. So they just work for us. We just give them work. And we kind of have struck that sort of fine balance there. Why not W2 then? I don't understand that part. We probably should. I mean, speaking of taxes, like that's one of the reasons why that <laughs> the seller did it that way. And, you know, I think, you know, those guys like being paid as 1099s. They, they just like being subbed out. They like just getting their paycheck. They manage their taxes. They manage all that. We pay them on a weekly basis. Like they basically just do their jobs. We pay in the next week. So one of the things that they really like is the fact that we just pay them quickly. So, there's an argument to be made that they should be W-2s, but right now we just stuck with them as being 10 and the All right. So how does the sales process work? So a customer will either call us, go to our website and request a quote, or they will come into the store. We'll ask them questions. We'll interview them. What are you doing? What's the job? Where do you want you know carpet? Where do you want LVT? Whatever. So just interview process. And then what happens is, we go out and we measure the site. So we go out, we measure each room. We, you know, look at all the things that are necessary to do the job, you know, whether it's carpet removal, baseboards, any floor prep, furniture moving, appliance moving, all that stuff. So we'll go out to the job site and then we will draft them up a quote. 
with everything inclusive of it necessary to do the job. And then they move forward. That's basically the sales cycle. And it can take anywhere. I mean, you know, you, you can have someone walk in the store. I can go out and measure today, close them tonight. Or it could be a job that, you know, they're building a new home and they, you know, they want to start thinking about what wood products they want to put in their home. And it could take a year to, you know, close the deal. So it's kind of a mixed bag. There's a lot of high-end clientele that can take a long time to close here. And then there are some locals that just want to turn and burn their carpet and get it done in two days. So it's a little bit of both. What is average ticket? So one of the other parts of our business is we're kind of like a supply house. So we sell materials to contractors. We have a ton of pallets of, you know, mortar, of grout, caulk, you know, everything that's required to do flooring. So it's kind of hard to say what the average ticket is because you can have someone walk in and buy a tube of caulk for 14 bucks, right? And then you could have, like, we're, we're about to do a $50,000 wood job, right? So I would say like for our installs, you know, you're probably averaging if it's carpets, a lot cheaper than LVT. So carpet, you're probably looking at an average of 4,000 a ticket. LVT, you're probably talking 8,000, 9,000 a ticket. And then it just really depends with the contractors and the cash and carry business. That could be anything. So probably I would say, you know, 20, 30% of our business is that sort of cash and carry contractor materials, you know, and then the rest of it is jobs and selling product to contractors as well. Yeah. How do you look at this thing? You're coming from a background of like at scale rollup, right? <laughs> yeah. Jumping into consulting, like you're looking at a lot of businesses, larger businesses that are using Salesforce. And then you jump into a small flooring company. So what is next? Like, how do you look at scaling this thing? Or are you content with where it is? And like, this is great. Let's keep this thing going. Yeah. It's a good question. And it's something that I'm struggling with right now, frankly. You know, now that I'm kind of past that one year mark, it's like, okay, what, what do I want to do now? You know, I don't really think that this is something that I want to like roll up at scale. I don't want to go buy like a bunch of other flooring stores in Colorado. I kind of see myself as like, this is a good thing we have here. I don't really think that this is like going to be a business that's going to scale to $10 million. And I'm pretty happy with what we're doing right now. You know, it's, profitable. You could probably consider it a lifestyle business to some degree. But I think that, you know, over the next year, I'm going to give that question a lot more thought. Probably won't be in flooring. Probably will be doing a different industry. We have a sister company next door called Granite House that does granite countertops, quartz, and it's a really nice symbiotic business. So I could see myself, you know, potentially buying that or some other business in sort of an adjacent industry, kind of like what you're doing, right? So it's probably not going to be an at-scale flooring roll-up, but probably will be something a little bit more adjacent, or it could be something that is completely different. Like right now, I have like a technology background. I've done consulting. I know Salesforce. I think that there's a lot of opportunity out there in the Dyson B technology space, something I'm exploring right now with a guy who's a CTO in Silicon Valley. So Right now, I don't have a great answer for you right now. There's a lot of things up in the air, but probably is not going to be a at-scale flooring roll-up or anything like that. Probably would be something adjacent or something completely separate. Yeah. Do you read Alex Bridgman's newsletter? I used to. Like 
when I was doing my search and kind of starting out, I was a little bit more involved in that, but I haven't read it recently. He references a post on the Fatfire Reddit about a guy that did an at scale, you know, at scale, maybe 90 million in sales, which is big, but it was flooring contractor all over, I think the Southeast, Southwest, Southwest. So Arizona, maybe Colorado. I don't know. He throws the entire thing out in this Reddit thread. I think you can find it pretty easily. I'll email it to you later. Yeah, please do. <laughs> but it was interesting. I didn't have much of a point other than, have you read that? Because <laughs> the moment we sort of started talking about it, I was like, oh my God, yeah, I just read about a guy that did this. And it was like six or seven deals over four or five years. And it was crazy. Yeah, they're doing 90 to 100 million in sales now. Wow. Totally bonkers. But each deal was like minimum 5 million in sales. And then they now they're only looking at eight-figure revenue deals. But I guess even at that size, you can still... It's a, I guess, difficult business to run yeah. or people aren't looking at them. So the multiples are still pretty attainable. Huh. Interesting. So, so there we go. You're going to read it and then you're <laughs> going to do it. <laughs> hey, that, sound, that sounds pretty good to me. I mean, I didn't go into this with any grand ambitions of like having some massive roll up. I wanted to just kind of get my feet wet in something that was, you know, a step up for me, you know, financially, but was also like not biting off too much. So I feel like I struck a pretty decent balance with the deal that I did. But I mean, I have the same itch that I'm sure you have, which is like, I want to start to do something bigger and better and feel like now that it's a problem. Yeah, exactly. Now, <laughs> now that I've crossed that one year mark, I'm starting to like get that itch again. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see which way you trend. You should read the article because I think if I would have followed my natural tendency... I would have done a lot of different things. I even did in the beginning. So like I started a few things that were sort of correlated, sort of not. We bought real estate. We tried other stuff. But then we just ended up, like, I didn't know what a roll-up was until like late 2020. Mm -hmm. And I'd already done five deals or something by that point. So I don't think I had the grand ambitions either, but we sort of found out five years into the journey or four years into the journey. Oh, like we just created value. Like we didn't know that. Yeah. It was a total accident that that whole thing happened, but I'm glad that we did find out because then, you know, multiple expansion and all the things that come with it. Yep. But it'll be interesting to see which way you go. Diversified or focused. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you're I, at the bottom of the steps, <laughs> the red or the blue pill, right? <laughs> no, I know. You're, and you're right. Like I want to be careful. Like I don't want to be, someone that just chases this shiny object and tries to do whatever a tech startup just for the sake of being a tech startup, right? Like I want to be thoughtful about this and, you know, I have a good thing going here. It's working out like I hope. So it makes a lot of sense to just double down on something like this, you know, or do I, you know, like I said, kind of chase my fancies a little bit more and do something that's completely outside of what I'm doing right now. So yeah, I'll keep you up I, to I don't date. think there's a right or a wrong. <laughs> Yeah. But keep me up to date. I'm curious to know which way you end up going. Yeah. So if you wanted to, let's go back with double down, but instead just doubling down with like your current brand infrastructure, how does this grow organically? How can you put fuel on the fire with your existing business? I think it is probably going to be, you know, probably a mix of really pumping sort of the contractor cash and carry business. And just 
expanding the install team potentially. Those are probably the two levers that make the most sense right now. Right now, the thing that I sort of have as a natural barrier to growth is I live in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Like there's only so many people who are looking for, you know, LVT in their condos right now. So like I said, it's not like I don't see like an obvious way to just throw fuel on the fire to double this thing in mm-hmm. the next 12 months. I think that we're continuing to grow. Like last year we grew at 30%, which is great in my opinion, based on what I was sort of forecasted. Like that was way over what I was hoping. And, you know, I think if we can, you know, continue on that sort of like 10, 15%, 20% growth trajectory, that's a healthy thing. And, you know, I think that if I could talk to you two years from now and we're sitting at five, six million of revenue, I think that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And would you be content? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I probably have the same itch that I have now. Like it's, as you probably know, like it's a little bit insatiable at times. We'll see. I mean, you know, like I want to make sure that, you know, I'd like to eventually start to kind of have that sort of middle management layer and upper management layer that I can trust so that I can go and do a deal in the front range or something, or go and do a deal in Denver you know, maybe do a deal with a friend out of state, whatever. So eventually the ability to take a step back from the business, because right now I'm like, I'm the engine that makes this whole thing go. And that's good. It's good that I'm like getting my hands dirty to that level. But eventually I'm going to have to, you know, install some management that I can really trust and allows me to go do something else. (laughs) Yeah. As a GM, what do you think your weak points are right now? Your strong points are clear. I'll build you up first. I don't want to like beat you up. You're clearly extremely intelligent, ambitious, driven, very capable, and you seem to be a good leader, right? You seem to get a good pulse on your team. I built you up. But Thank so you. what are the things you think you could improve on <laughs> as a GM? <laughs> I didn't want it to be all bad. <laughs> no, thank you. I think that I could well, first of all, hiring. I have not been good at that. I've not like had that mentality of hiring and you know getting that management layer in i've just been trying to keep the team like as it is cobbled together you know so i think i probably so much of that's time too just like literally effort who has the time when you only have 16 people on the team like it's impossible right to fully recruit the way you need to yeah exactly so i have not been good at that you know i've just been trying to keep my head above water the last year, really. So I have not been strategic in that sense. Even to this day, I'm still out doing measurements. You know, I'm still out like talking to customers. I'm still out in the field, like, you know, freaking measuring for carpet jobs, you know, like it, that's not what I should be spending my time on, but I have not taken the time to find the right estimator, to find the right GM, to find the right, you know, whatever to allow me to free some time up. So that's definitely my biggest weakness. I think I have a long ways to go with leadership wise. I've engendered some pretty good will with my team, but I still think that that's an area of growth for me. And, you know, I think sales is something that I did not have a background in, but I've gotten a lot better at that. For people out there who are listening that think that they're not salespeople, I wasn't either, but you kind of eventually, you have to be in sales and when you run your Mm -hmm. own business. And so you just kind of have to get enough reps under your belt and eventually you get pretty good at it, surprisingly. How quick do you think you got good at it? I mean, I'd say probably again, it took like nine months for me to like 
you know, be able to talk to any customer confidently and like Mm -hmm. close them, you know, and say, I was pretty surprised when you said you were doing the measurements. I mean, that's like, I feel like that's good. Specialized. Like there's a lot going on there. No, like it is definitely a skill. And like, we don't give out our measurements. Like that's a proprietary thing that we do. Right. So like, here's your bid. If you don't want, if you want to, you know, take it. But yeah. So, I mean, that was nothing. I was terrible at that. I mean, literally Mm. I was like scared of a tape measure. You know, I'm like a freaking, I'm a guy who is (laughs) not handy at all. You know, like sure. My dad never taught me anything about construction or I just wasn't, that wasn't my world. So like, I was literally intimidated to use a tape measure, you know, but now I'm confident with it. And like, I roll up to a, to a job site with a bunch of, you know, roughneck contractors and I feel like I can hold my own a little bit. So (laughs) that just takes time and reps and confidence Mm -hmm. to build up slowly. I didn't jump into the sales position, but we did a deal last year where we promoted someone to like full-time sales from in the field. And I definitely did not appreciate how long it would take to get up to speed because it is like, this is technical stuff. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. And yeah, especially coming from like not even close to the industry, I would imagine that that was a real learning curve. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it, it still is. Like I, I do not consider myself like a technical expert on flooring, but you know, I feel like I can walk into to someone's house and like, you know, make them mm-hmm. feel confident with purchasing with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I always get curious by people who had backgrounds looking at a bunch of other businesses and then why they chose the one that they chose. <laughs> yeah. So the last one who I put through this was Mills. So Mills, you know, he was like selling businesses as a sell side IB. And then he went and worked at permanent equity. And I'm like, dude, you saw like thousands of deals. How did you end up with a roofing contractor in the Carolinas? <laughs> yeah. So like, same question. You saw tons of other companies. Then you embarked on a search that you said lasted about a year. Was it 10 months to a year? And you ended up with a flooring contractor. So walk us through that part. Yeah. Yeah. My search is actually pretty short. It was only like four months, five months. Oh, wow. That, okay. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, kind of like the two filters that I used for my search were financial and geographic. So I was look. I kind of subscribed to the, the Harvard Business Review, you know, financial barometer of 750,000 to like one and a half million of EBITDA. And then geographically, I wanted to stay in the Rocky Mountain region. So I looked at a ton of deals from Arizona, New Mexico, up through Idaho, Montana. And you know, I was living in Denver at the time and I'm from Colorado. So I wanted to stay in Colorado. And this deal presented itself. And for a number of reasons, it made sense to me. Like I love Steamboat Springs. It's an awesome place to live. My wife loves it. It's a great place to you know, raise a family. So for a lot of the personal checkboxes, it met those. And then you know, flooring to me was like, I think there's a lot of tailwinds that have sort of played out. Like I hoped, you know, COVID has been a huge boon to the industry. Everyone, you know, people are staying home. They're working remotely. This area up here in Route County, Colorado is exploding. There's a huge housing shortage and there will be for a long time. So there's a ton of building going on and, you know, just sort of the being in an industry that I thought was not necessarily the most competitive, you know, the, the competitive dynamics up here are pretty tolerable. There's only a couple smaller competitors here and we have the best pricing with our suppliers. 
the previous owner had engendered a ton of goodwill with the community by and large. And like I said, we also have that sort of geographic moat where we're not competing with Lowe's and Home Depot. We have the labor that people want. There's not a lot of contractors that are coming up from Denver to Steamboat Springs just because it's so far away. So there's just a lot of like, there's a lot of barriers that make this a pretty moaty business, surprisingly. And then, you know, with flooring, like, yeah, it's, there's a lot to it and there's a lot of technical things, but like, it's not rocket science. You know, this isn't, you don't have to have an electrician license. You don't have to be a master, you know, plumber or whatever. Like it is an industry that doesn't require any certifications. It is something that I've actually, I had laid floored prior to doing it. So I had some experience with it and I just felt like this is a business that has some characteristics that will hopefully make it successful for the long term, and is not going to be something that is going to be overly taxing on me to get up to speed. So those are some of the reasons. Yeah. Those are all good reasons. What were the other, if any, because the search was so short, like, did you get a good look at other businesses or was this the first one you saw and just went for it? I looked at a lot of deals. I was kind of you know perusing quite a bit before I actually searched full time. So I had pretty good, I had decent laid the land. I didn't do a proprietary search or anything like that. I just did a brokered search. And you know, this one I thought the price was fair. You know, Live Oak Bank rubber stamped it pretty quickly. So I was able to, you know, get the ball rolling on it. And throughout the deal process, I was expecting it to fall apart just because it was kind of my first go around, really. And it just kind of kept going, kept making sense. I kept thinking for all the reasons why I shouldn't do it, but worked out. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want? to cover? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's a crazy world, as you know, you're a big inspiration. So thanks for paving the way for us little guys out here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I'm too much of an inspiration, but I do think maybe this other guy would be. (laughs) I'll I'll forward you the email. (laughs) Just buying up plumbing companies. Not too crazy. No, but not to kiss your butt or anything, but it's cool to see what like what you've done and you know, what you know, mm-hmm. Rich Jordan and guys like that are doing like, it's cool to see like sort of the next generation of like young entrepreneurs, like come up and see the value in these types of businesses and enact on it. So it's a cool place to play right now. No, I totally agree. And I think it is just totally wild. The different types of people that have come on this show and we're all roughly doing the same thing, right? We're all like, yep. we're either buying one thing or we're buying, you know, lots of things, but yep. we're all roughly doing the same thing around the same time, but the backgrounds are like totally wild. Like, I don't know. Like I'm looking at you in a vest and a plaid and you're probably wrapping up your work day. And like two years ago, you were probably in a suit or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's so true. Like two years ago, I mean, I was two years ago, I guess was COVID lockdown. But, you know, before that I was like on a plane every day or every week, you know, I was like, I was in a suit. I was like traveling around the country, Mm -hmm. like, you know, living that consulting lifestyle, living in a hotel room. And, you know, fast forward now I'm like freaking driving a beat up pickup truck. And mm-hmm. like, you know, I've got like carp- carpet remnants <laughs> in the back of my car, my truck, you know, so and living like, the dream <laughs> and living the dream. I wouldn't have any other way. Like it's cool, you know? So yeah, no, you're right. It's an awesome opportunity for all sorts of different backgrounds. Yeah, yeah I agree. But that whole thing just cracks me up. And I thought at the moment the Zoom call popped up 
And you started talking to me about your background. I'm like, this dude's just hanging out in this plaid. He's living his best life right now. <laughs> and I just think that's great. But yeah, we've had people on who just, you know, we've had people who started from like, you know, the trades like me and it wasn't anything prestigious or whatever. And we've had investment bankers on and people executing full-scale roll-ups. And it's just a totally fascinating like area, this little road that we've all found ourselves walking on regardless of our backgrounds. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's so cool about this background is that, you know, it's not about credentials. It's not about how rich your parents were. It's not about what college you went to. Everyone I work with here at the store, I mean, I think one person has a college degree, right? And, but I respect them all. They all do great work. They're all super valuable to society. We're doing good work for our customers. No one asked me whether I went to college or, you know, like, what frat I was in or whatever. Like that just doesn't, it's a world that really strips away all those things that are not necessary to actually creating value. So I really enjoy it. And I think it's really great that these small businesses provide a platform for not only just, you know, meaningful work, but true wealth creation. And I have an employee who came from Brazil and like, you know, had nothing in his pocket. And now he has a good amount of net worth. And that's all just from flooring and granite countertops. And that's a pretty amazing thing. So I think it's, that, that's one of my favorite parts about doing this is that I'm not around people like I wasn't consulting who are like so hell bent on whether you have an MBA or not, and like whether you can get to the next level based on your credentials and things like that, that are to me superfluous. So it's a really fun place to be. Mm -hmm. It's no bullshit place to be. Yeah. Credentials <laughs> don't matter much. It's just like, can you do it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Are, are you capable? Yeah. Yep. Well, I love to end every episode with one simple, but probably very difficult question, which is what's your single biggest challenge right now? My single biggest challenge is my wife's about to have a baby in about a month and I need to have kind of a little bit more of a balanced life. So thinking about how I can take a step back a little bit from the business for the next three months and have it still operate at a high level. To my earlier point about hiring, that's something that I have not done well. So I think I have a little bit of a challenge in front of me to be able to spend time with my baby and my wife and, you know, and have the business still run well. So that's something I haven't, I don't have a great answer for right now. I'm probably going to have to work more than I want to, but that's something that we'll have to kind of spend some more time thinking about over the coming weeks of how I can have a little bit more of a flexible schedule, not be in the shop so much, spend more time with my baby and balance all the considerations there. So that's by far in a way, the biggest challenge I have on my plate right now. Yeah, that's a big challenge. Yeah. Our kids, I think the hard part is like a month, you know, just my own feedback from like two kids. A month is like, that baby could be tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Both of our kids were late, but I, I know. <laughs> Don't tell me that. Yeah. Well, I mean, late in your case could be better. That could help with your single biggest challenge. But, you know, early would, you know, sort of be the opposite. But yeah, that's a big one. I'm sure you can figure it out and hopefully get to spend all the time you want with your kid and your wife. That sounds like fun. Yeah, I hope so. Hopefully it uh, works out in my favor. But yeah, man, life's crazy right now for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this was awesome. I appreciate you coming on today. If people want to connect with you, where are they able to find you? 
find me on Twitter. My handle is at TOF underscore Edwards, T-O-P-H underscore Edwards. Awesome. And would love to connect with you there. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time. And this was a good one. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Thanks, John. Appreciate it.